This is episode 39 of the Immunology Podcast, Extracellular Nucleotides with Dr. Enrique Borges da Silva. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Enrique Borges da Silva from the Mayo Clinic on the podcast to talk about his research investigating how extracellular nucleotides regulate the immune response. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and immunology news coming up, but first... Are you participating in an immunology journal club? Stem Cell Technologies is offering you an opportunity to win $300 worth of refreshments to fuel your journal club and the discussions there. To find out more and enter this sponsorship contest, visit stemcell.com forward slash journal club contest. Sounds fun. Yeah, we have journal club, but I don't think I get I, I can apply for that, but that's okay. Mm, probably not. I mean, and also I would say what we're doing now is kind of a journal club, don't you think? Should we, we should we be getting refreshments from stem cell? <laughs> we should. We should we, ask them. There we go. All right. You have a paper that you want to cover first up that, that is oh, quite yeah. a hot one that I think we're going to end up talking about quite a bit. I so think so. Why don't we do that? And sure. you, you can talk about it and then we can get into the into the controversy. I mean, I don't know if there's controversy yet, but the results of this paper are just kind of weird. And the and I and, and I have to say that this reminds me of like the start of those papers, and then you know, down the road they show that they were not as reproducible and as expected. So without meaning to mistrust the first author, let me just talk to you about the paper that I'm gonna call the rise of the zombie T-cells, maybe. So this paper is called Intracellular Transfer of Telomeres Rescues T-cells from Senescence and Promotes Long-Term Immunological Memory. Um, and it was published in uh, Nature Cell Biology. And the first author is Lissio um, Lana, and he is the founder of, and CEO of a company that is has clearly been set up in order to kind of cash in the the results of this paper. So the company is called Sensel, um, and was founded by this first author. And what what first caught my attention, besides obviously the the the, the, the kind of the the title and the what it kind of conveys, is the fact that uh, it has also an interesting kind of combination of authors. Uh, including a, a person called Brendan Bloomer, who is a CEO of a blockchain company. Um, I assume it's kind of a strange addition to the authors list. Um, and kind of people from several different uh, labs have collaborated uh, into this publication, uh, but it is, seems to really be the brainchild of you know, our first author. Uh, so the the idea of on this paper that i think is kind of crazy and i i really don't think has been suggested before is that upon uh synaptic kind of t cell synapse with apcs the apcs undergo uh expulsion of like the vesicles that are that contain telomeres like telomeric sequences in there that can be transferred to the T cells they are interacting with. And these T cells not only pick up these vesicles, but incorporate these telomeres into their own chromosomes. 
And I think that's just mind blowing. Um, so that's why I call, you know, the, the rise of the zombie T-cells, because basically these T-cells are increasing their kind of longevity at the expense of the telomeres of the APCs. So maybe more than a zombie would be like a vampire, vampire T-cell. Um, so I have to admit that the, the, this, this paper, so I, was, I did a little bit of digging because I thought this is kind of an interesting situation because obviously this is a senescence and kind of longevity. It's a huge um, interest field nowadays. Um, so there's obviously an economic interest also, I think, illustrated by the fact that a company was set up by the first author. And those, I feel, I felt a little bit kind of skeptical about the, the, the kind of this being so perfectly, all the perfectly um, kind of coming up together. Uh, I don't know how they're planning on cashing in this particularly. Um, there's probably going to be some kind of product, something that is uh, in, inducing synapses and favoring telomere transfer to T-cells. And I guess the idea is that you can keep your T-cells young for longer, maybe improving uh, vaccination responses or improving the overall um, longevity of your immune system. We know that throughout age, uh, there is a substantial decrease of, of, of cells that have, there are certain phenotypes that are associated with kind of non-senescent T-cells. Um, and also T-cells do get the telomeres uh, reduced throughout their proliferation. They proliferate a lot. Um, and so quick overview of the data presented in this paper. First, uh, the author shows that um, the length, they have this kind of this blot in which he can uh, look into the, the telomere length. And I'm not sure exactly, I think it's completely clear how he exactly isolates the cell types, but it, the first the first figure of this paper is basically APCs, after uh, being uh, part of a synapse, synapse, they have end up with reduced size of telomeres. So you see a smear of a different size, and the T cells from that uh, from that interaction end up with almost three kVs more of telomeres, which is something that is not is not mediated by a telomerase, which we know is a little bit activated on T cells, but this. Uh, a level of telomere extension is not explained only by telomerase. They do an experiment which is do a CRISPR knockout of telomerase. I'm a little bit skeptical about the technique that they use because I, I do CRISPR knockouts all the time. And it feels like they do viral, uh, they do, I think, plasmid transfection of CRISPR. And it's a bit, that doesn't work that well on primary T cells. So I'm surprised that they had such what they seem to be almost 100% knockout of, of telomerase. That seems a little bit strange, but uh, if we follow this data, they show that um, there's these telomeres, so APCs get shorter, T cells get longer. And then they do a lot of fish experiments. So they uh, have this, um, this, this uh, special probes and they can pick up the, the telomere uh, T-A-G-G, T-A, T-T-A-G-G-G, I forgot what is the... The, um, the specific um, sequence that characterizes uh, telomeres. And they, they have these kind of microscopy uh, images in which they show that there's these vesicles that, con that, that kind of are staining for this, for this fish in this fish assay. So there are vesicles containing telomeres that are found in the APCs upon synapses. And then they see that these, these vesicles are 
expelled from the APCs and then they're taken up by the T cells. And then if they, for example, do a BRDU stain of the, of the genomic uh, DNA of the APCs beforehand, they can see, they can find that this uh, fluorescence is transferred also to the ends of the chromosomes of the T cell. So like that's how they show that there's actually kind of a horizontal transfer. Um, and it's very strong. It's, they say that about, in their numbers, about 8% of T cell, of they look at the T cell chromosomes in metaphase, they see uh, incorporation of BRD or not sorry, EDU from derived from APC telomeres in eight percent of T cells. So they don't do like like a labeled test, like take radioactive or heavy nucleotides, feed them to the APCs, have that incorporated in their DNA. After replication or whatever, and then and then watch it move to the T cell. So I guess they they do that with the EDU stain. So, so that's they, they, of... they the EDU incorporate in the APC and then show it on the telomere. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that that is that's the way they do it. And I think what's also like, and so they move on and they, and they show the, they have, so basically you have this telomere, this vesicle, the telomeres, and they don't have only, so, and they also look at some certain proteins in the APCs that are associated with kind of telomere uh, extension and, and protection. So they have a particular, uh, a particular uh, enzyme, uh, or a particular protein, this they call, it's called TZAP, telomeric zinc finger associated protein, which kind of um, um, is, a, is a binding protein uh, that binds to telomeres. And um, that the activity, they, sh they show that it's upregulated upon uh, um, activation of the APCs and that this stimulates uh, them to cut, uh, they, they trim the telomeres, and this allows these telomere fragments to be encapsulated into vesicles. And these vesicles also have uh, RAD51, which is um, a, a, a recombination factor, which is uh, involved in telomere elongation. So it's kind of these little packages that come with the telomeres and with the enzymes required to, to incorporate them into the T cells. So it's like, this is insane. I find this insane. And it's, it's weird that we've never seen this before because it's, I mean, the data that they show is really kind of, very um eye-catching in a way um so basically think this no is, one's looked before maybe though? i mean it's such a weird idea to start with right um i mean this this is not the first time something like this would happen right often we miss completely miss uh huge things um and i think no one's looking like if you're not looking maybe you're not gonna see it um so they also, he also does some experiments in which he looks into, um, so they have basically cells that are uh, activated in the presence of telomere vesicles or not, and then they show that uh, cells with its vesicles, they uh, have reduced senescence upon proliferation, they can proliferate for longer, they also have some in vivo ex uh, experiments in which they have, uh, they, they transfer cells to, to a mice, um, and they have, and they, so they have these oval OT2 cells. And then into mice, they pulse the mice with ova, and then um, the 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 T cells that were expanded with telomeres from APCs have kind of 
uh, better proliferation, expansion. They're going to have less signs of senescence compared to those that were not, were transferred without this kind of telomere boost before. Um, so I, th I think it's, it's, a, it's a very, very intriguing result that we see here. Um, and I wonder how this, yeah, will play down, like, uh, down the road. Uh, I'm looking forward to see people trying to kind of, uh, yeah, reproduce this or like work on, on this idea. What do you think, Jason? Well, I think someone needs to replicate it and soon. Yeah. And yeah. then I just wonder if it extends to any other cell types. And then if it does, then I would start believing it. It's, it's interesting. It could be something no one looked at. It's weird enough. It could have been overlooked, right? It's not like something that yeah. we've all looked at. And they got something new and fancy that they're going to sell a company on. It is weird, which is actually a favor for them in my mind. Because it's yeah. something you wouldn't expect. But I mean, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird. It's cool, but it's like, wow. So I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to see the future of this paper. Um, this is one of those things I thought, what? So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I do, do not want to, you know, I want to keep my, my, cool, my cool science head, not get too excited about the shiny new thing. Uh, I do want to want kudos to the author, to uh, Alessio Lana. Let's see how his company goes. So I want to wait to see what product they are uh, and, releasing uh, to uh cash on this um discovery and and we'll see how it how it uh plays out right all right well okay what i do don't you have, have anything this interesting but i do have an accelerated article uh it's in nature it is common human genetic variants of apoe impact mirroring covid mortality so apoe is that lipid gene and there's apoe two three and four these are known isoforms APO3, you know, there's APOE, and then there's 234. APO2 and 4, known to be bad actors associated with Alzheimer's, and particularly APOE4, um, is known to just be associated with disease, and particularly, as I said, Alzheimer's. Um, well, they, the, these authors, I don't know why they did this, but probably they just went on a fishing expedition and found something pretty cool. And about 3% of people are homozygous for APOE2 or 4. Um, and APOE variants are associated with immune process, dysregulation, anti-tumor immuning, sclerosis, and now it's COVID. So people with APOE2 or 4 have worse COVID outcomes. So, uh, I'm going to go to the last article, part of the paper where that you look in humans in a UK database and find this is true. They have worse mortality and outcomes than APOE3 or other APOE mm. people. Okay. Um, but and it's associated all the way with survival benefit. They do this in mice because they have humanized mice that have the APOE gene that's been flipped over. And they basically recapitulate that um, E2 and E4 mice have increased COVID accelerated progression with worse histological damage. But that's in the lungs, not in the interstitium or vessels. And um, this has to do with antiviral immunity is delayed in them. But eventually, APOE4 recovers. Um, so early immunity, APOE2 and E4 genes are downregulated, um, but APOE3 are not. And then they deep dive in and show that they have more myeloid cells and lymphoid cells in the lungs. 
And then they see hyperactivation of coagulopathy pathways in ApoE2 and E4 mice. And, and recombinant ApoE3 significantly reduced infection in a cell system, but not ApoE2 or E4 when it's introduced. And then, um, but later on, ApoE have more robust antiviral T cell responses than ApoE2. But early on, they're both screwed and it's the early response that seems to be causing everything. So ApoE2E and 4 lead to decreased adaptive immune responses, which leads to worse COVID outcomes in mice and also increased uh, hypercoagulability responses. And then in people, this holds true and people with these isoforms die more from COVID. That doesn't sound very nice to those people that have the isoforms. Nope. And then if they survive, they'll get Alzheimer's. ApoE4 is a single most monogenetically associated gene with Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. How is that mediated? Is this a similar thing or do we not know? It's, no, no one knows how this is mediated either. This is like, it affects the immune system and immune genes and <laughs> cells. No one knows how the lipid protein does what it does. <laughs> much immune system, many T cells, much myeloid. <laughs> yeah. I see. Okay. Uh, maybe it's something related, right? The, so in this case, it's affecting the, the, the ratio of myeloid cells to T cells. Maybe it's something similar in the Yeah. In I mean, so we know it affects those things, but I don't think anyone's figured out how it works very well. Mm. I guess, the, well, this is very interesting, you know, because uh, to, to start teasing out those genetic uh, components of, of, of COVID um, yeah, response. Uh, so it's very, very interesting result. And then that you, they could kind of better model it in the mice, in the mouse model. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. Okay. So for my second, less controversial paper, um, I have a really little nice story from immunity um, that talks about another of our uh, favorite topic of ours, nasal vaccination and nasal immunity. So... This paper, uh, mucosal plasma cells are required to protect the upper airway and brain from infection. First author, Sebastian Welford from the lab of Ashley Mosman at Duke University. Very nice story in which they kind of differentiate what happens in an infection of kind of the, the, the nasal cavity uh, and they differentiate between different areas in, in the nasal airways. And there's two main, re two main re regions that are important to keep in mind. And one is the, one of, is the respiratory epithelium, and the other one is the olfactory epithelium. And this is important because in the olfactory epithelium is where all the olfactory sensory neurons are, which are projecting the sensory dendrites into the airway. And that's how they pick up all the scent, all the information about scents. And they send, they have kind of a high, direct highway to the brain. Um, to the olfactory bulb in the brain. And this is very critical because many pathogens actually are capable of hijacking this highway and, and finding their way all the way to the brain. Among these, among some of the famous, uh, the Hall of Fame for doing this, is this Nagleria foleri, <laughs> this brain-eating amoeba that sounds horrible and it's horrible things to the people they infect. You're um, never going swimming in a lake again, are you, after reading this paper? I know. I Well, you know, I heard about, like, it was like a case recently in somewhere in the U.S., like now climate change is making things warmer and something like that. It's terrible. I mean, I grew up in a place of cold waters, so I feel quite safe there, but damn. So, brain-eating amoebas, 
several viruses also are capable of infecting the neurons in the olfactory, um, the olfactory uh, mucosa and go up, uh, including SARS-CoV-2. So here's that SARS-CoV-2 uh, segue just for you. But this, this, this paper does not focus on SARS, but they do have a figure at the end, of course. It is, after all, after post-2020. Um, but so they have this viral model. They have a VSV of a vesicular somatitis virus infection in mice. And that is capable of kind of infecting the CNS, like the olfactory pathway all the way to the CNS. And usually mice, uh, there are certain strains of VSV and the strains that they use, mice can, can kind of really mount a robust response and they're mostly protected against reinfection. Um, but they show that the, the neutralizing antibodies that these mice generate in the serum are not mediating any protection against infection on the olfactory mucosa. So the respiratory mucosa seems to be kind of uh, served by the, the neutralizing antibodies in the blood, but not higher than that, sort of like closer to the, to the olfactory nerves, the, that area around the olfactory nerves. And they even do parabiosis experiments and again, they, and they show that the having neutralizing antibodies in the serum alone is not protecting against kind of infection of the olfactory uh, mucosa. And so what they ended up showing is that antibodies don't reach those cells right up there. And it's and they so they kind of end up defining what they call it the Bob, the blood olfactory barrier showing that it's similar to the blood-brain barrier, the soluble, these large proteins from the bloodstream cannot go through. Um, but if you, if you get antibodies right inside, beyond this barrier, then there's kind of free uh, flow of, of things within this area. And so the question is, if you have, if you do see antibodies there, where are they coming from? They're not coming from the blood. And those antibodies that are protecting, because these mice are protected somehow, actually coming exclusively from B cells that are resident in the olfactory mucosa. So they have these plasma cells, mostly IgA positive, that are there inside, and they're making the antibodies inside this small, inside this 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 uh, particular olfactory mucosa. And this 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 B cells, these plasma cells, they are. So they do a bunch of experiments and they show that these B cells, the differentiation of these B cells happens in the lymph nodes close to the nose. Uh, it is, they require CXCR3 and they are recruited by kind of with the help of CD4 cells within the lymph nodes. And then they acquire a phenotype that kind of sh sh shuttles them all the way to the olfactory mucosa. Um, and they, they home there and that's where they make their antibodies and they're specifically protecting that area what is interesting they end up kind of the the, the, the story they end up uh, showing that there are ways of inducing this olfactory mucosa resident b cells in a way um but not every adjuvant so if you have like vaccination strategies not every adjuvant works in the same way and they have this adjuvant they call that is called dmlt which is a double mutant uh toxin so from there uh, derived from e coli and they show that it's capable of inducing these mucosal kind of B cells if they, if they 
vaccinate the mice uh, in a kind of double that would do do two doses, and they that's and in this way they can actually kind of give the B cells the right signals to migrate to the factory mucosa. Unfortunately, they're not really good at showing exactly how this happens, so that's where I, they're a little bit fussy in that part. Um, but they really seem to kind of bring the point that there are certain types of vaccinations or adjuvants that will uh, induce the right signals in the um, in the lymph nodes that might make these B cells that go to the to the to the nose. And they do one experiment with with a SARS-CoV-2 model. They actually have a VSV with SARS-CoV-2 envelope proteins. And they show that actually with the mRNA vaccination from, in this case, they use the one from BioNTech, from Pfizer-BioNTech, they they seem to show that they can induce resident B cells in the mucosa uh, with with this particular vaccination type. So, but this is in mice, suggesting that I know in a way suggesting that maybe it's not that critical to do nasal vaccinations that they, the B cells are still going there. But it's hard to tell because as these B cells are resident in the tissue, I don't think people take nose biopsies to look into B cell activity in there. It must be very difficult to evaluate in humans whether you actually have kind of resident plasma cells making IgA in that particular region. Also, I would not like anyone going there touching my olfactory nerves. So I'm not sure if you can actually test it better in humans. But it was a kind of an interesting, I think it was an interesting, um, interesting idea, this kind of this uh, olfactory uh, barrier. And the idea that you have, you really need um, specific B cells that are resident there. Doesn't matter for the respiratory epithelium, but does matter for this part, this mucosal part, uh, higher up, closer to your brain. Interesting. One of the treatments that they were having for that became popular was this nasal gel of zinc that was really effective at kill, get, preventing infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they found the zinc was destroying your sense of smell. <laughs> oh. But it actually was working, probably by preventing this other pathway from being hijacked. Mm, maybe. Maybe all your cells, all the cells are dead, and then the, where there's nothing for the virus to infect. <laughs> well, your epithelium there is not receptive. It's not uh, it's not receptive to any virus. Now we know more about the nose, or we need to vaccinate the nose clearly. Yeah, or make ways of making the B cells go to the nose. Apparently, you can't do there. that. You don't want to. You don't want to go there. It's smelly. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to go to my nose either. I don't know. Okay, what you got? I got one more here. Nature microbiology. Inflammation-associated nitrate facilitates ectopic colonization of oral bacterium Vianella parvula in the intestine. First author is Daniel F. Rojas Tapias. Last author is Romnik J. Xavier. Uh, It's Kayim out this 22nd of September. So I like this paper because it gets past the chicken and egg problem, the microbiome. We're like, oh, you have a disease, and then is the microbiome causing it or not? So they noticed that this one bug, Vianella parvula, or VP as I'm going to call it, um, it is um, mostly associated in the mouth, but it's been associated in IBD patients before. Like it's just there. They're like, well, this is weird. 
what's going on here. So they, instead of trying to see, is it a bad actor now? They're trying to figure out how it happens. What they basically find is that inflammation in the gut results in INOS activation, right? And that releases nitrate. Well, this bug is a preferential nitrate bug. And when you have a food source that's compatible with its life, it will live. So it will normally die. We swallow it all the times. It's in our mouth, right? But normally it doesn't survive very well unless you give it nitrate. And that nitrate and other lets it shift uh, its metabolism and allows colonization then. And so they show this in mice with DSS colitis, which is a chemical model colitis. But importantly, they do a good amount of work mapping out the metabolic pathway and show these bugs, this bug really likes nitrate in certain ways to live off of. And I'm not going to go into all the details here, but they basically do a whole bunch of different genetic deletions and use a whole micro, microbiology knockout strategy and knock-ins and show that what it likes. And it can ferment lactate, but basically it's able to respirate in the inflamed intestine when nitrate's present. They show that, hey, if you remove nitrate, it doesn't grow. If you add nitrate and it grows, if you do this, you do that. They establish ex in vitro its living conditions and how much it likes nitrate and what pathways and what operons it's involved in, um, which is not really the focus of the podcast, which I'm ignoring that part. But then they show that the inflammation in the gut releases nitrates through INOS, right? And so they knock out INOS in the mice and then give it the bug and it doesn't colonize, even with colitis. So the DSS still made the colons more inflamed in the NINOS knockouts. They still have the same colon length and other inflammation markers, but the immune cells driving INOS, when it's gone, there's no nitrate there for the bug and then the bug doesn't show up. So that's what I thought was cool. It's showing that this host microbiome relation is due to a metabolite of the immune system when it's doing its thing and then this bug likes it and it comes, hangs out. Now, that could be pathogenic and induce a pathogenic environment or not. That's yeah. a separate question, but it's getting at the relationship much more in depth than, oh, this bug's here with this condition. Maybe it's causative. Yeah. It's a really good show of correlation is not causation. Right. Well, it gets rid of that chicken and egg thing that's been driving me nuts in the microbiome. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a pretty cool story. I like it. Yeah. So, so no, I, I like that too. And, you know, we, we're going to be talking more about metabolites here uh, with Dr. Enrique Borges da Silva at the Mayo Clinic in just a moment. But before we get to that, uh, Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to human immunology news. It covers everything from immunotherapy, autoimmunity, and adaptive and innate immunity. Human immunology news keeps readers current with the latest news, research, policy, events, and jobs relevant to the immunology community. Subscribe for free at humanimmunologynews.com. Hi, everyone. We are talking to Dr. Henrique Borges da Silva. He is a system professor at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and he's going to talk to us about the lab, the work his lab does to understand how extracellular nucleotides regulate the immune system. Very interesting. Professor da Silva, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm actually a listener to the podcast. Uh, it's good to know that somehow you guys came across my name and uh, wanted to hear a little bit about my research and myself. We're so happy to have like people that are listeners can, like uh, coming at the podcast now. So it's, it's fun. I, I enjoy that. I'm going to kick it off. All right. Question. So the way I want to frame it, I'm a T cell, I'm a rapper and I go ATP. Yeah, you know me. 
So what 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 is this uh, love affair you've discussed discovered between T cells and ATP? Well, uh, this story uh, actually uh, started. I mean, uh, I'm gonna tell the historical context, right? Uh, when I was a grad student in Universal São Paulo, I was in a laboratory that worked with trying to understand how T cell immune responses are formed against malaria and tuberculosis. Because, as you're probably aware, if if you are in the South America, a lot of the immunology research is focused on infectious diseases. So, uh, in my laboratory, that laboratory was transitioning to study more the role of purinergic receptors, which are receptors that recognize nucleotides, including ATP in immune response. But I was the remnant of the past, let's say. So I was the only person not working with ATP sensing on T cells. Um, but again, the focus of that lab was CD4 T cells. So I, I kind of, in the back of my mind, was interested in understanding, well, is there something related to ATP sensing in CD8 T cells? And I knew by going to, for example, imgen.com that some uh, CD8 T cells uh, do express P2X7, which is a receptor for ATP. So I came to the University of Minnesota uh, to Steve Jameson's lab to do my postdoc. And uh, my initial project was not going to be ATP at all. It was going to be something related with KLF2 and S1PR1. That's what Steve does. Uh, but then uh, I mentioned that to Steve, and Steve was like, well, that's funny because we are trying to see if we if we block this pathway, we can rescue better numbers of tissue resident memory CD8 T cells. Because the idea initially is that, well, tissue resident memory CD8 cells express very high levels of PTORIC7, and ATP can induce cell death of many CD4 T cell subsets. So the assumption that we had is that, well, this is going to be the same for CD8 T cells that are TRMs. And uh, we have we the field have a chronic problem in uh, uh, recovering uh, optimal numbers of tissue resident T cells whenever you do harvest, right? Because you have to do mechanical disruption of the tissue, enzymatic digestion. I mean, Dave Mazepus had uh, showed that pretty nicely in a cell paper in 2015. Uh, I'm gonna try to be uh, to summarize, but uh, but um, but the idea is that uh, initially we we thought, well, if we block this pathway, we're gonna have more TRM cells being rescued during harvest, which in some ways is true. I did publish that in 2019, but then Steve, this is uh, always trying to push you a little forward. Uh, he's like, well, what happens if you block this for a longer period of time? I mean, uh, is this detrimental for uh, the maintenance or the establishment of tissue as the memory CD8 cells? So initially we thought the opposite was gonna be true, right? That to block this pathway, you're gonna have more uh, TRMs, but then uh, I came to Steve and say, well, Steve, this is the result. Um, he he told me to repeat that using other uh, models, and the rest is history, history right? I mean, uh, we, we didn't notice that um, uh, T cells express uh, varied levels of this receptor, and that is important uh, for the establishment of uh, memory CDA T cells in a very weird way. Um, and um, I've been working on that since then. Very interesting. Just, just to maybe take a step back, I have a very basic question to ask. Why is there extracellular ATP and where is it coming from? Oh, that's a very good question. And that's part of the research that our lab is doing right now. So uh, ATP in the extracellular environment is traditionally understood as what we call danger signals, right? So uh, in situations where you have a threat to the host, so you have sterile injury, you have cancer, you have infectious diseases, uh, you have the release of these molecules that are usually inside the cell. They are part of the host, but they're not supposed to be outside. 
uh, and ATP is one of those molecules. Uh, so in a lot of cases, what happens is that you have uh, tissue damage and cell death of infected cells, for example, and uh, what happens is that you have passive release of extracellular ATP through the extracellular environments. There's other parts, and uh, that's a uh, work that we're about to submit, that uh, there's active release of ATP by channels. Uh, but the notion or the idea, if you think about, uh, is that these molecules, they usually typify a situation that, well, there's something wrong with the host. So usually innate immune cells are the ones that sense those signals. And a lot about ATP is no only innate immune cells. So that's the work of Vishvadixit on the NLRP3 inflammasome. Uh, but it has been appreciated in the past few years. And that includes uh, our work that T cells also express receptors for this uh, ATP and other danger signals, as a matter of fact. So, so, so the idea is that they're not usually out of the extracellular environment. But when they are out, usually that means that there's a situation that things are not okay. For the host. So do we know what, I guess, intracellular concentrations or concentration tuning is needed to generate a signal in these CD8 cells? Like how much ATP does there need to be? Uh, that, that is a question that will depend on the receptor that we're thinking because there are seven uh, receptors for extracellular ATP. Uh, PTRX7 is the one that we study because it's uh, expressed in a more abundant way on T cells. Uh, usually, <clears throat> what you need to activate the PTRX7 receptor are considerably high levels of extracellular ATP. This is a low affinity receptor for ATP. So you need at least 50 micromolar of extracellular ATP uh, to engage this receptor. Uh, the thing that is important to note is that uh, if you think about extracellular concentration of ATP, it's not uniform. It's not like every single portion in the extracellular environment, you're going to have similar concentrations of ATP. Uh, what you usually have, and uh, that is true, works from Wolfgang Junger, which is another specialist in the poor energetic field, uh, have shown that the concentration of ATP in what we call the pericellular space is much higher the concentration of ATP that you find away from the cell in a way that if you take the entire supernatant of a cell culture, for example, you're going to have nanomolar concentrations, very low concentrations. But if you somehow get the supernatant that's only in the pericellular space, you'll have actually pretty high concentration of ATP, enough to activate PTRX7. Uh, so to summarize your question, you do need quite high concentration of ATP to activate PTRX7. Um, but usually that occurs during infection for uh, some many reasons. I mean, uh, because of this unequal distribution of ATP, uh, there is multiple sources of ATP that it's not only passive release, you also have active release by T cells themselves, as a matter of fact. Um, but, but, but usually to activate the pituric 7 receptor, you need quite high concentration of ATP. And is ATP stable enough in tissue circulation elsewhere? Yeah, that's an important question, and it's something that we want to track. Uh, we have some probes that uh, we can transduce T cells. Uh, we are going to study that, and uh, we can basically in vivo track how much ATP the cell is sensing at a determined point. What I believe it happens is that ATP is not stable at all. You have a lot of ectotPases present. Uh, but what I think happens during infection, you have a dynamic state where you have ATP being released and degraded. degraded 
but the ATP release is to some extent con uh, constant, but not necessarily all the time, but uh, it, it occurs um, in, an, in an off amount of time that you can promote the activation of these receptors because you're going to have ongoing tissue damage. You're going to have ongoing activation of channels that are present on innate immune cells and adaptive immune cells that are going to release ATP. So I don't think it's stable, but I think the fact that the release of ATP occurs in a span of, in a longer span of time helps uh, uh, making the activation of pituitary feasible. That's what I believe. Of course, I haven't, I don't have proof of that. Uh, yet yeah. yet i think just kind of to wrap up that idea of where the atp is and because if you say that this receptor p2rx7 is required for the uh for the the tissue residency of the cd8 cells then you would assume that it's because it's been it's signaling in a way so it's been activated by sufficient amounts of atp to or or how would you then you would expect that there is some kind of release of ATP that's kind of a basal levels of ATP. Otherwise, the existence of the receptor would not make a difference. Yeah, yeah, those, those are good points. And uh, uh, and actually, this is one thing that we were puzzled about because uh, we we have a Pituric 7 conditional knockout mouse where we can knock out this receptor during the effector stage immune response and after memory CD cells already formed. And basically, we found in 2020 that the T cells, the memory T cells, they need Pitrix 7 also for the long-term survival of memory CD cells, where you're not going to have tissue damage, right? So your idea of basal levels of ATP, I think, is spot on. And there is one particular channel that caught our attention that is expressed by T cells, and uh, it's called panexing one. So there's a lot of work done by uh, researchers such as Cody Ravichandran, which is now at New York Washington University, showing that T cells and innate immune cells and also epithelial cells at certain sites, they express this channel. And panexin one is a nucleotide release channel. So it sounds counterintuitive. But what it may be occurring, and uh, we are uh, about to submit a paper on that, uh, and we know that it occurs, right? Is that T cells, CD8 cells express this channel called panexin one, and uh, it induces the release of extracellular ATP. And it is present at constant levels throughout the immune response. And if you knock out panexin one at the memory stage, the CD8 cells have the same problem with survival that we have if you knock out Pitrix 7. And we know based on double knockout systems that this is true Pitrix 7. So what happens is that there's always a basal amount of extracellular ATP around the CD8 cells. And this is being dictated at a populational level by the CD8 cells themselves actively exporting ATP. Now, this sounds very weird, and that's something that we're still trying to understand. What is the evolutionary reason why this is occurring? I mean, why would CD8 cells pump ATP out of the cells, right? Um, but the, but the, the basal amount of ATP is something that we believe it does happen. And uh, we believe, at least in part, is through this uh, release uh, via this emichannel copanexin one. All right. So I guess the next question, then we've, we've talked a lot about the ATP getting out there and it being important for CD8 cells, but you have a pretty recent paper. What does this ATP do to CD8 cells? So traditionally, uh, what we know about Pitrix 7 is that it is an IO channel 
So basically when ATP binds to P2RX7, it induces calcium reflux and in some cases, potassium reflux. And uh, in many cases that will ultimately induce uh, NFAT activation and uh, proliferation. For CD8 cells, we know that this is uh, one of the pathways that is important for the function of P2RX7. So if you block somehow, or if you go on P2RX7 knockouts and you forcefully increase intracellular calcium levels, you kind of rescue the phenotype of P2RX7 deficient CD8 cells. And uh, ultimately, what it seems to be doing is uh, it is favoring uh, the expression at a transcriptional level of uh, factors such as TCF1. And, uh, and, and this is uh, happening already kind of early in the effector stage of the immune response. If, you, if you're talking about the JI paper that we published in 2022, uh, and what happens is that it helps CD8 cells, I mean, if we help CD8 cells to, uh, to have their fate decision toward longevity versus short leave. Um, now, how is this happening? It's something that we're still trying to understand. I mean, how we get from Pitrix 7 and calcium influx all the way to TCF activation. Part of it seems to be related to alterations in the immunometabolism or the, the intracellular metabolism of these cells. Uh, so we, we have done this experience before. And uh, if you think about uh, memory cells or cells that are already committed to memory, uh, if you knock out Pitrix 7, they have a problem in engaging oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, and this seems to be partly related to the inability of pitrix 7 deficient cells to activate the MPK pathway. Um, but how does this affect TCF expression, TCF7 expression? is something that we still try to understand. And this is going to be uh, one of the, the projects that actually we got funded to do that, uh, try to understand how pitrix 7 induces this pro-longevity uh, phenotype in uh, CDAT cells. But to summarize your question, I think uh, uh, it is absolutely because, uh, or is absolutely related to calcium influx. It is absolutely related to an increase in the ability of these cells to engage oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, it does induce TCF7 uh, and other transcription factors associated with prolongevity, such as um, God, uh, back to, uh, I mean, I have, there's a kind of a long list TCF7 is the one that usually uh, pops up more, uh, more correlated with Pitrix7. And it does have a relation with AMPK activation. But of course, we still need to do more research to tie those things together. I'm thinking of AMPK activation. I think, well, AMPK also can sense ATP, ADP. I don't know if my, that has, but I guess it's two different interfaces. One of what happened outside, and I think it was what was happening inside. No, actually, that's a good point. And, uh, uh, there, there are three ways uh, by which AMPK, the AMPK pathway can be activated. I, I never remember the third one, but it's TPK1. Uh, but you, you have calcium-induced activation of AMPK, but uh, you also have uh, AMPK activation if you have uh, a skewing toward increased AMP ATP levels, right? Uh, if you have mm -hmm. the ratio between AMP ATP. And yeah. uh, one of the things we, we have done recently, we were about to submit this paper uh, probably in a couple months, uh, related to Panexin 1, is that P2RX7 activation uh, promotes the recruitment of Panexin 1 to the immunological synapses. This is known uh, by, by other researchers. And what happens is <clears throat> we did metabolomics and we know that the AMP-ATP ratios intracellularly are skewed 
in a way that if you knock out PTRX7, you not only have lower levels of ATP extracellularly, but you have an increased levels of ATP intracellularly early on during the infection, mm. during the activation. Uh, and then what happens is that this is uh, somehow hindering the activation of the MPK activation. Makes sense. So, so part of the reason why MPK is activated is likely because of the fact that PTRX7 is recruiting panexin one panexin one is promoting the export of ATP, which by itself induces sensing of PTRX7 again. But also this export is not only to serve as a source of ATP, that's what we are trying to uh, make the points in this next publication, but also because it is also skewing the levels of AMP ATP inside of the cell. So AMPK activation occurs in a lesser way, in a lesser mm -hmm. extent. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, also AMPK has activation and the downstreams of that have been associated with memory, with longevity. I mean, uh, so that makes, that sounds kind of reasonable, uh, reasonable framework. I I have a little bit of a slight change, but related to <laughs> related to the topic. But I work a lot with with cancer uh, and and T cell uh, so immunology in in the tumors. And one of the molecules that comes around a lot when it comes to characterizing this exhausted, this overactivated phenotype, it's CD thirty nine, which is this yep. uh, hydrolase that. It's extracellular as well, and does uh, degrades ATP outside of cells. So this is the, the understanding I have about the importance of C39. And CD39 is very widely used to kind of apparently to identify tumor-specific T cells. So there seems to be a lot of like importance put on this molecule. Do you have, given what we just learned, what would you do? You have any kind of comments on? The, the the consequences of this of this particular uh, enzyme? Oh yeah, me and a lot of people have. Um, and actually, <laughs> uh, the, the idea is that the CD39 together with uh, the molecule CD73, which is expressed mm -hmm. in T cells and other cells that are present in the tumor microenvironment, is going to ultimately induce uh, production of adenosine. So that's the mm -hmm. idea. The ATP gets cleaved, forms ATP, AMP, and adenosine. And adenosine is immunosuppressive. So if you uh, we have uh, started looking at uh, the role of PTORX7 in CD8 T cells in the context of cancer. Uh, we published a paper early on this year uh, showing that if you have activation of PTORX7 during the priming of CD8 cells in an adoptive cell therapy model, uh, these CD8 cells tend to uh, survive better and promote anti-tumor response in the context of melanoma, which is published in cancer immunology research. But it is also true, and this was shown by Fabio Grassi, uh, which is another researcher on the on the field and others, that PTRX7 uh, can be it can be detrimental once the T cells are in the tumor. Now, the the idea here is that uh, you have a kind of a weird balance in the tumor, and if you think about a tumor that's immunogenic, like melanoma, I think that's the example that I, I keep more in mind because I work more closely with melanoma. Is a hot tumor. You have a lot of ATP being induced by cell damage. Uh, I mean, you have, you have up to 300 micromolar, so you're going to have enough to activate Petrix 7. You also have a lot of adenosine, which is immunosuppressive. So, what a lot of researchers believe, and I also believe in that in the same extent, 
uh, in some extent, is that if you manipulate the balance between ATP and adenosine, that's going to somehow skew T cells toward more function versus less function. And uh, at the same time, it's interesting because in a lot of cases with human cancers, expression of CD39 on T cells is correlated with better prognosis. So there, I remember looking at posters from folks from the Wary lab uh, suggesting that this is the case. So it, it gets a little complicated because uh, to what extent uh, what they're seeing is just a, uh, a readout that you have more T cells in the tumor microenvironment versus you need somehow to curb excessive ATP because there's another characteristic about Pituric 7 that I perhaps I, I kind of glossed over is that it's a weird receptor, right? It, it induces calcium influx and potassium influx if we have intermediates to me mildly high concentrations of ATP. But if you have too much ATP, it forms these non-specific pores and it can induce apoptosis of T cells. So what we believe happens once the T cells enter the melanoma microenvironment, and again, I just say about melanoma, is that you may have enough ATP sensing to activate these T cells, but there's two signals that could be uh, happening at the same time that could be bad for the T cells. One is adenosine, which is immunosuppressive per se, and one is just excessive ATP sensing, which is inducing apoptosis of T cells. So to summarize, it's a very complicated scenario, but, but the idea is that, uh, the general idea is that the, the balance between ATP and adenosine is going to dictate whether the T cell is going to respond better or not. How complex. I, I would just add to that, that because it's very close to my field and what I see uh, around me in, in my research group, that CD39, maybe the signal of CD39 is related to CD39 being correlated with tumor specificity uh, uh, in uh, contrast to kind of bystander T cells. And that's maybe the signal that they're seeing is maybe is not a causality, but just a correlation in that, in that sense. But man, it's so complex. Yeah, isn't and, it? and that, that's a good point because uh, to, to, to what extent, if this is true, then that brings back something that we don't fully know about this, all these poor energetic sensors and manipulators, et cetera, uh, CD39, PTRX7, adenosine receptors, that what is the regulation of the, uh, what is the upstream regulation of expression of this? Yeah. Is this PCR induced? Is this induced by hypoxia? I mean, a lot of people believe that uh, expression of adenosine receptor, for example, is regulated by hypoxia. I'm okay. not entirely sure if this is true for T cells, but this is certainly true for other cell lines. Uh, yeah. So, so based on what you're saying, it would suggest the CD39 is somehow regulated by TCR. Right? Yeah, I think that is the the idea. That is the, for what I understand, the a little bit of the consensus. Because if you look closely into populations that are expressing their specific markers, like high amounts of PD1, CD103, CD39, I think in the last years have really keep coming up as the ones that are characterizing the, the T cells that are recognizing antigens on the tumor in contrast to those who are just like hanging out there and they're they're not tumor specific. And I think we've discussed this in the podcast a couple of times already. So really this seems to be like a signature of some kind. But well, you know, it's it's really difficult <laughs> uh, to yeah. conclude uh, much from it, that, that, that is a correlation. Very, 
and it can be very context specific, right? For sure. Yeah, I, I, I also think so. Yeah. So this is kind of a tangent, but makes me think we're talking about these patterns. We talked also about condition ATP of the adenosine receptor, right? Well, mm -hmm. most famous adenosine receptor, I think, are the most fa famous, not receptor, famous adenosine antagonist is caffeine. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of studies that keep coming out that like drinking three more cups of coffee a day or three more or more cups of tea a day all reduces all cause mortality in multiple studies. It's just like broad based. Yeah, I know. And uh, it's good to know because I drink a lot of coffee. So. <laughs> Are you trying to justify your cousin no. coffee consumption, yes, Jason? Yes, but it's also true. <laughs> tea, the UK came back and said, hold my tea. Yeah. And show this, but I, I wonder <laughs> if there's something there when we're talking about how central these very poorly understood receptors are that like pounding down and antagonizing that adenosine receptor. I, yeah, but, but, but see, see, that's the thing that is interesting for me because, okay, we have this general idea if you think about cancer that blocking adenosine receptor is good. But I always try, I'm a biologist, so I always try to think about the evolutionary reason. Why is this thing there? Why, for example, why do T cells evolve to express adenosine receptor? Uh, th there got to be some level of advantage. And for, for instance, we have done some pilot experiments. We should, we should publish that at some point. That if uh, you knock out the adenosine receptor to a, uh, you actually have less uh, tissue resident memory CDA T cell. I mean, I, I have never published that. This is one of those thousands of experiments that you do as a postdoc that uh, you never follow up. <laughs> um, but but evolutionarily speaking, it is the same for CD39. CD39 and other inhibitory receptors are expressed to some extent uh, without the outside of the context of exhaustion by uh, tissue resident mm -hmm. memory cells. I mean, I think Laura McKay showed that in a recent paper uh, that uh, you have this low uh, low grade expression of this inhibitory receptor. So my question is. Uh, I shouldn't be asking the questions, right? Uh, uh, but this is a, que a rhetorical question. I mean, is this going to be always advantages to block an adenosine receptor? I mean, like, but I mean, if if that justified coffee consumption, I'm all for it. I drink I mean, a lot of coffee. <laughs> that's my question, right? Like uh, this data is like some of the most robust all-cause mortality data they've ever found. Like yeah. all-cause mortality is the holy grail of anything, right? Now, the good yeah. news is you have huge ends of people who drink coffee and those who don't and they drink tea and don't. And it's not controlled for like yeah. soda and stuff. And maybe soda has enough bad things in it that you it, it ablates anything good, right? But like coffee and tea are plant phenols, which maybe have some effect too, and caffeine. And it, both of them now seem to drastically like have real effects on everything from liver elasticity in some diseases just straight up you don't die as much yeah yeah but th that's an interesting thought i mean maybe i could uh go back and uh start looking i mean I, that's one of the reasons why i made a clinic right I have access to a lot of uh, patient samples i can uh, start trying to see if there's any correlation between overall survival of patients of every single disease and expression of these receptors um or coffee consumption of god knows how yeah i mean the cough the coffee consumption uh, is pretty well nailed it's like three or four big studies now and the tea has one but like what that why that's where i'm getting yeah. at why the thing that could overcomplicate things the caffeine probably doesn't only hit adenosine receptor right um i mean i can probably uh, block many other uh, receptors or induce many other other ones 
Yeah, I don't know how specific it is. I haven't I haven't looked at the KDs. Yeah, and, and actually there's a very a very anecdotal uh something. Yeah. Way back in the days in 2011, I was doing part of my PhD project, which was on dendritic cell phagocytosis of plasmodium parasites in Portugal. And I was doing intravital microscopy. And I was helping this PI, uh, he's not a PI I go make it anymore, uh, to do some intravital microscopy of the uterus of the mouse. And uh, one of the problems we had is that mouse uterus keep moving. And now, and this PI, this researcher, uh, he's back in Brazil now, he found out in an obscure paper that if you administer caffeine topically in the uterus, the movement slows down. The movement of the organ slows down. Probably due to hitting some sort of nervous system cell. And it worked. I mean, like a, the uterus is moving very slowly. So this is just a, something that crossed my mind right now, is that a, caffeine must be hitting other receptors that can be present in every single organ. And uh, God, I mean, uh, this is just, uh, I love tangents. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, do you do that? Because now we're going to be here for five hours. Uh, no, I'm just joking. But, uh, but, but, but I don't think caffeine hits only adenosine receptor. Uh, I, I am working with adenosine receptor and uh, how it affects T-cell responses. So, At the Immunology Podcast, we ask the hard questions. Like, yeah, for sure. How does, how does coffee save your life? I love those weird questions, man. Uh, if you if you if you keep asking these questions, we're gonna be here forever. But uh, but no, let's not do that. <laughs> I wonder if anybody did. You know, Jason, uh, in Latin South America. I don't know if you, uh, Enrique, you drink cimarron, uh, but you know, in, in Argentina, we drink all this mate uh, infusion. Oh, in the that south of Brazil, they drink a lot of it. Yeah, right. You're too far, you're too far north for for this. Are you, are you are you from Sao Paulo? Yeah, so we're more yeah. like coffee, but uh, I have drink that before. I mean, like, uh, for those who don't know, what is is this thing of which you speak? It's uh, it's it's uh, it's a type of uh, infusion that it's made uh, with a, a very similar, a process similar to tea, but it's a different plant. It's a plant that, right. that is uh, native to South America, to Paraguay. It's called mate, and it's very bitter. I mean. Uh, it's nice. It's like a strong I mean, green get, tea. It's an acquired taste, right? You get, you get, you get, <laughs> but it also has caffeine to some extent. So we it's, it's our version of, of coffee. Anyway, I have to say, I don't think a lot about, you know, the ATP outside the cell. Uh, most Mostly focused on the one inside. Uh, but um, uh, it's, very, it's very interesting to see how the cells are sensing their uh, environment in that way. Yeah, and I have a feeling that this is going to be way more complicated than we were yeah. describing now, right? Because all our first papers, when I was a postdoc and now I'm a, as an assistant professor, we're looking at very, very contrived systems, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. LCMV infection, which is a very yeah. benign infection of the mice or a melanoma mouse model. So now here at Mayo Clinic, we're going to go a little crazier. I mean, like we Ooh. have access to patient samples. Uh, we are now studying in more relevant infectious diseases, such as influenza. Ironically, I have the flu right now, but uh, <laughs> uh, but I think uh, then it's going to become a little bit more complicated and context dependent. I mean, we already know some weird things about it. But I mean, that sounds just one comment. Uh, you also show in the case of the, uh, the tissue resident cells that it's about TGF beta signaling and how it yes. helps the cells yeah. respond to TGF beta, which is very important for 
uh, residents. So there's a, and also that is, is that also mediated by the calcium influx? Ah, uh, good question. I mean, uh, that that's something that we still need to look at. I mean, uh, the, the most we know is that what it was published on the net immunity paper that Pituric 7 is promoting the upregulation of TGF beta receptor tube to some extent already in the outside of the tissue. Uh, but uh, certainly inside of the tissue, that's going to be some additional signals. Uh, now, whether is it calcium influx, whether is uh, somehow the MPK activation inducing, that's something that we need to look at uh, uh, in a little bit more closely. I mean, uh, uh, again, this is going to be a grant proposal that we're going to send out. <laughs> I'm going to send out at some point, which is transcriptional regulation of Pitrix 7 and induced by Pitrix 7. Because uh, it's kind of a black box right now. I mm. mean, like uh, we are in that part that we know point A and point B, but we don't know much what's happening in the middle. We know a few dots, but uh, about TGF beta, you know, we really not sure how is Pitrix Seven inducing that. Mm. So I guess my last question to wrap this up: Do we know if extracellular vesicles um, carry ATP? That's a good question. And uh, theoretically, this is possible. I mean, like every time I present a seminar, I put that in my slides. But we haven't got the guts to study that yet. Uh, but theoretically, this is possible. I mean, like uh, there, there are three ways how nucleotides can be exported actively, right? Via channels, such as panexing one. Via connexing channels, like uh, GGA, GJA5 or whatever. And via extracellular vesicles, uh, we, uh, I mean, this, this is one of those things that uh, the limitations of being an assistant professor, right? You have to think about, uh, you have to prioritize certain studies because you have a limited amount of people, you have a limited amount of money, and uh, you got to get your pub, uh, your first papers published, your first grants submitted so you don't get fired, right? Uh, but, <laughs> but this is something that we want to study. I mean, uh, it is theoretically possible that uh so sort of vesicles can export ATP. We, we will do that in the future. Uh, keep uh, keep up. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll keep you guys post uh, uh, updated about it. But I don't know. I don't know to what extent this is going to be important, but uh, theoretically, it is possible. Uh, All right. So there seems to be a lot of work in your future. Uh Maybe is this a good time? Are there any open positions in your lab that you would like to advertise? Are you any yeah. maybe listener who would be interested uh, in? I mean, I'm always open for for people to to come. Um, my lab is kind of full right now because I just hired three new people. Uh, I got funded uh, recently, so uh, mm. it was time to to expand the laboratory. Uh, but I'm always open, for example, to people that are from outside the United States and want to do a visiting PhD or a visiting uh, um, position. Uh, and then eventually, I mean, you know how science works, right? I mean, uh, yeah. lab is kind of filled up right now, but eventually people leave, people get jobs. I mean, like, uh, I already have an alumni, <laughs> someone that's in the industry now. Uh, so, so, so I'm always open for, for people that are interested to talk to me. I don't have physical space to put more people right now. That's the point. So I need to be responsible about that. that uh, hey, congrats on a full hiring suite. That's been a struggle for a lot of people lately. Oh, I know. I know. I, I, I'm lucky because I have a Brazilian connection. I mean, like, uh, uh, one, if you are from another country uh, and you become a PI in the United States, 
you realize, hey, that is almost impossible to get postdocs from the United States because not even the folks like uh, Rafi Ahmed or Richard Flavel, or you know, even there, they are struggling. And B, you realize that you always have kind of a bond with your alma mater in your country of origin. So uh, three of the people that are in my lab now are from Brazil. And right. uh, for them, uh, it's it, it's easier to hire them uh, yeah. because you have that channel of communication. So so I got lucky on that. Um, I mean, uh, it's it's funny actually because uh, I was in a conference in uh, an Aguardo research conference in June, and uh, <laughs> Hongbo Chi from Saint Jude was a uh, he knows me from before, right? And he was chatting with me. I was like. Did you get postdocs? It's really hard to get postdocs. It was like, oh yeah, I have this connection with some Brazilians. Like, can you please advertise in Brazil? I'm looking for postdocs. Please send them to me. Oh wow! (laughs) Is it that bad? I mean, here in Europe, we hear about all the struggles uh, that Americans are having, American labs are having uh, lately to get postdocs. The biggest biggest struggle is that the industry is being such a, I shouldn't say a sink, but like a yeah, very so attractive now in hiring people from PhD. And I understand the grad students in, in that point of industry, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the pay is better. It, academia is tough. I mean, like a, the next step from postdoc to PI is, is not easy. I mean, there's not enough mm. PI jobs. I actually think this is going to get better in the near future. Uh, for many reasons that I don't need to discuss now, but uh, it's been really hard. So, yeah. All right. So I think our conversation is coming to an end, but it has been super interesting uh, chatting with you. Uh, we like to ask our guest a non-science related question uh, to get you know you a little bit better. So our question to you is, if you were not a scientist, what would you be? Oh, that's a, that's a good question because uh, it, it depends on uh, the context, right? Because, uh, as a scientist, you become more and more in your field, right? So yeah. you learn more and more what you do and less and less about everything else. So if if that question is related to right now, I think I'll be homeless if I'm not a scientist because I don't think I know how to do anything else. But when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I used to love, I used to love, I still love sports, right? Uh, I mean, my, my hobby is to basically watch soccer and uh, World Cups coming, by the way. But, but the thing is that I'm usually, I'm generally not good at practicing or playing. I'm very mm. bad at it. I mean, I think the only sport that I was really good at playing was volleyball. Uh, I was a good setter in school. Uh, but then uh, when I asked my teacher if uh, I had a chance to be a pro, he said, no, you're too short. Uh, <laughs> so, That's so rough. Uh, so it's so cool. probably I'll be a sports journalist because I like to read and I like to read about sports. I mean, like, uh, I probably memorize more stuff about sports than about science to be honest so so i think i'll probably be a sports journalist there'll be those guys that uh work on the those morning sh- sports shows uh provoking each other or something like that that'll be good so, you can okay. always ask the losing team right after they lose how they could do better to not lose next time yeah <laughs> that's always my favorite interview it's like so you just sucked how oh, would yeah. you not suck and i'm like by sucking less yeah that's a great and uh, that's a great answer very very you know apply applicable uh plans so yeah did you did you see ted lasso talking about sport i like that did, did, did I, uh, you see that I show i haven't seen that much i saw a few episodes it seems pretty good i mean like uh, i need to to watch a little more uh, 
But, uh, it's I, the I, only I, sports-related show I see. <laughs> I've seen. Yeah, in a few episodes too. It seemed hysterical. I loved it. He's he was such a such a nice like feel good story, you know. I I like that. After watching like Game of Thrones, when every when every where everything goes to just trash, at least yeah. the lasso gives you a you know warmth in your heart. Yeah, but I I need to watch more of it. I mean, I'm a little late on shows. Uh, Ain't nobody got time too. for that. Yeah, I was uh, way too uh, out of TV recently, but uh, now we're me and my wife are coming back. So we need to, <laughs> okay. need to catch up. So you'll never catch up. With that in mind, we should let you get back to the TV. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. It was pleasure. a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Bye, guys. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com. Can get the show notes and which includes an episode summary and also the links to all the interview and roundup papers as well. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com if you have any feedback or you would like to suggest a guest. See you next time.